Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're in the extra time. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time, a podcast brought to you by RNZ Stuff and Locker Room. I'm Joe Porter and joining me on the programme this week is Stuff journalist Dana Johansson, Sky television commentator Faunor Ken Laban and sports writer Hamish Bidwell. Well, the America's Cup is listing. Allegations of mismanagement are swirling. There's talk of hacked Hungarian bank accounts, the suspension of government funding, and now an investigation by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment into structural and financial matters surrounding Team New Zealand's organisation of the America's Cup. On one side is Team New Zealand boss Grant Dalton saying there's been a highly orchestrated attack on his team's integrity and credibility. And on the other, concerns that Dalton is not only heading up Team New Zealand's racing arm, but also the America's Cup events arm, which is in charge of running the actual show. Danny, you've covered the America's Cup for several years. You know far more about it than I do. How serious are these allegations? Or is this simply more of the usual intrigue and claim and counterclaim around cheating and spying that we have all come to expect from the contest for the old mug? Yeah, there's definitely a bit of a confusing web of um, counter-allegation and allegations and swirling about, but I guess the most central and serious claim that tends to get a little bit lost in it all is is really around um, the, the $3 million pool that um, the America's Cup events have paid across to Team New Zealand, the syndicate. Um, and, yeah, with Grant Dalton in charge of both, you know, clearly there's questions of um, whether that was ethical, whether there's been any oversight over this payment. Um, so there's an investigation around that. Team New Zealand, um, they they obviously um, deny those allegations. They say that this payment had always been arranged. It's been in their reporting, in fact, for about a year. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really what the, the most serious and central claim is, and that's what this MB investigation will hopefully um, hopefully sort of dig out. I see some journalists are running polls on Twitter last week. Who do New Zealanders trust least or less, Grant Dalton or former Health Minister David Clark? It's one of those kind of um, situations where it, people find it hard to know who's telling the truth. Yeah, and I think the problem was, and it, it, I don't want to seem wise after the fact because definitely no questions were asked at the time, but now it seems staggering that you know, the government would hand over this amount of money without some sort of stipulation of independent leadership in that America's Cup events arm. Um, so really, I think the way that governance structure was set up has, has left, left Dalton open to these allegations and you know, allegations of conflicts of interest there. So um, really they could have been avoided had they had a better leadership or governance structure in, pl- in place from the outset. Hamish, there's millions of dollars of public money involved here. How relevant do you think the America's Cup is to New Zealanders and why do we seem to get captured by an event that essentially, I guess, for many of us seems like money or Formula One on water? Um, I don't want to shock you or um, regular listeners to the podcast, but I'm not an America's Cup enthusiast. Wow, um, really? Yeah, I know. One day the, you will, we'll talk about something that I am interested in, but um, it's not the America's Cup. So I was 12 when New Zealand first got involved in this racket, and I was, you know swept up in it a bit it was you know there wasn't a lot of tv coverage of sport then or radio coverage of sport and it seemed like a big deal we were told it was a big deal and so i was like okay that sounds good but 
the following year, Michael Fay got into his big boat thing where he, you know, injuncted America's Cup and he got, you know, and he was able to have a, a, another challenge inside the stipulated three years between challenges. And at that point, I was out. I didn't go in for this demonising of Dennis Connor. I just thought New Zealanders surely were better than that, than making fun of this fat guy from America who sells boats or, or playing around with the rules to get a challenge when they don't actually need to have one or don't deserve to have one. I just, I found it pretty sickening. And it's been hard in this country to sort of be on the sidelines and watch how people get swept up on this nationalism, which I don't go in for either, that surrounds the America's Cup. And um, throwing the public money aspect of it, I'm a bit ambivalent about now because there are sort of several codes and leagues being propped up by government money at the moment. And we need that because, you know, we're in a bit of a, a bit of a hole at the moment. But America's Cup as it stands, it's not for me. I can't speak on behalf of people and why they like it. Grant Dalton I find distasteful. Um, so the whole thing just leaves me cold. And I, I just think it'd be nice if it wasn't around and then we could concentrate on things that I would find you know, far more palatable than the America's Cup, frankly. Ken, how do you feel about the America's Cup? I mean, what's the following like in Wainui Amata, for example? Well, I don't know too many um, America's Cup sailors that have come out of Wainui Amata, but it's always been... Uh, it's always been a fractious topic. Uh, America's Cup sailing is um, is for the elite of sport. Um, when you talk about elite, you're talking about um, you know less than two percent. So there's always going to be a large groundswell of opinion that would resent um, the sort of money that's been passed across. Uh, on the other side of it, um, I suppose if we were talk to talk to government people or those in support. Um, of the public uh, funding aspect of it, it would be justified along the lines of um, uh, GDP impact in the, um, particularly in the Auckland regional economy, uh, the viaduct and the waterfront, what it looks like now prior to uh, New Zealand securing the rights to the America's Cup, uh, the investment by overseas teams who come um, and stay in the hotels and the impact on hospitality um, industry. I would imagine that all of those would have been justifications for um, money to be handed over on the on the basis that um, the increase in tourism, increase in hotel bed nights, increase in hotels and restaurants, all of those um, sorts of things. It's not a sport that I've followed um, closely. You know, New Zealand's a very small place. Conflicts of interest are common. Um, Grant Grant Dalton, he 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 himself is colourful and divisive. Um, character having said that uh, he has made uh, significant contributions to um, uh, to the country and to providing a profile for our country on the international um, stage but you know I, I don't feel I'm qualified um, to make a judgment on um, on the integrity of what um, of, of what's taken place and I trust the process and out of the independent inquiry um, we will know but it's uh, as you know though you know, that term economic development is in itself a very, very subjective term. We all have our different interpretations um, of that, but it's a lot of money being spent on a few sailors for sure. Dana, regardless of what the investigation overturns or whether it finds nothing and clears Team New Zealand and, and Grant Dalton, do you think that, given what we've just heard from Ken and Hamish about some people not necessarily being in love with the sport, this has done damage to their brand? Oh, hugely. I think, you know, the, the public trust in the events the event has now been sunk effectively and I think for that to be restored then they need to get some sort of independent leadership in place in that America's Cup events arm. Um, and when you think about yeah, the, the money that has been invested people are going to ask huge questions about how this event is being delivered. Um, 
Yeah, I I kind of wonder, you know, they're going to be relying on domestic visitors now, you know, the, the, the number of international visitors that they had initially budgeted yes. for that were in those economic proje- projections, those cost-benefit analysis, they're going to be well down. So they are really relying now on New Zealanders to get behind this event for for people down in Christchurch to come up and, and watch a bit of sailing for the weekend. Um, so if, if that public trust cannot be restored, then you know we could have a very dud event on our hands. And remembering also those early... Um, cost-benefit analysis, which which guided the government's investment, they were based on a minimum of six syndicates, challenging syndicates, coming to New Zealand. We've now got three. Um, so already what was kind of a marginal um, cost-benefit has, has now, I would say, be you know, less than a dollar. Well, America's Cup is obviously surrounded and mired in a little bit of controversy at the moment. There's plenty of focus around the world on racial bias among not just sports but all of society. And a study in Europe has found that television football commentators often praise players with lighter skin as more intelligent and hardworking than those with darker skin. The study was conducted by Danish firm Run Repeat in association with England's Professional Footballers Association. The study analysed more than 2,000 statements from English-speaking commentators in 80 games from the 2019-20 season across the top leagues in Italy, France, Spain and England. Analysis revealed that players with darker skin tones were significantly more likely to be reduced to their physical characteristics or athletic abilities like pace and power. The lead researcher was Danny McLaughlin. It was almost two years ago that I listened to a podcast by the Football Ramble and they were talking about how problematic it was to use words like beast and monster when talking about black players. And that kind of stuck in my head and I started doing a little more research into other kind of stereotypes within country and Finally, um, six months ago, I got I got the sign up to sign off to start working on this study because it was quite a, quite a large task. Have you had reaction from players or commentators? Um, yes, I've seen reaction from a commentator who's asking for more diversity training for the co-commentators. A couple of commentators have reached out to me privately to get a copy of the report so they can go away and understand what it's saying, which I think is quite uh, commendable. And I have just seen that BT Sport in the UK are now going to give all their commentators diversity training. Right, so the obvious question from a local perspective is, are New Zealand sports commentaries racially biased? Ken, we should start with you. Well, it's an interesting interesting question. And again, um, everybody has their own view. On, um, on commentators, they um, and I suppose New Zealand being multicultural and being diverse um, as it is, um, in large part that's reflected in the behaviour of a lot of our commentators. I do recall that controversy a number of years ago when the Blues uh, were going bad and uh, there was a lot of talk about um, the Pacific Island players weren't smart enough. Uh, I remember listening to um, Andrew Dewhurst, who used to be a um, a front guy on radio sport um, provoking a debate that uh, this is what they're saying about the Pacific Island players in, in the Blues. There's some merit behind that. I thought at the time I thought it was disgraceful. Um, and some might remember that uh, Blues coach Pat Lamb. He was he was shattered um, at the racism that um, him and his team were exposed to. 
to the point where a, a gifted, talented coach has now left New Zealand coaching in the UK and doing well. So um, I guess it's just, just a reflection of the times that we live in, that with social media, placing a spotlight, placing a spotlight on history, um, that it makes us all a little bit, more, little bit more conscious about the importance of inclusion, diversity and respect as a part of everyday life. You've been around rugby and rugby league for a long time. I mean, you surely must have. You, have you observed instances where you know these play, players like John Olamu, Joel Evandiri, Julian Savier, I guess, are touted for their physical abilities rather than their rugby nous, like perhaps Dan Carter or Corey Jane were? It's interesting. I was talking to um, John Olamu's uh, wife Nadine. Um, we were at the Coral Coast Sevens in January. And um, I was saying to her how annoyed I get with um, TV who constantly show Jonah's uh, four tries where he ran over the top. They're, you know, they're famous, famous tries where he ran over the top of um, seemingly helpless defenders. Um, and the impression was that, you know, he's the colossus of all that. Of course he was. He was a big guy, 6'5", 125 um, kilos playing on the wing. I can understand that, but you know, Jonah scored 50, 60 tries at least, um, where he had not a hand laid on him by a defender. He was phenomenally agile for such a big man and very, very fast. But they hardly ever show the tries. And I said to if they ever do another doco on him, I hope that they don't show those tries which portray him um, as nothing but a beast going But of course, he had that aspect um, to his game. But the sort of tries that we would equate to. You know, lighter players like Craig Green and Terry Wright, he scored equally um, same number of tries in the same way, but um, they, ne- they never showcased. And as a result, our perception of him is that um, he was a big, aggressive guy who was only capable of running over the top of people. Hamish, you had something so, to add? Yeah, people use terms. I don't want to sort of go through the New Zealand commentary sort of landscape, but people use terms like freak and beast, which are dehumanising. They 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 suggest that. The person is, is nothing but a brute, probably thick, um, relies on that to, to bully smaller, whiter people. And that's just, it's, as I say, that's dehumanising. We we have this thing, and it happens and it still persists. We don't necessarily, are, not necessarily as a racism, but there's a belief that only certain players can play certain positions. A bloke said to me the other day, man, Fiji produce some wingers, don't they? Well... Ken will have experienced this in his playing career. It was very common for guys just to be put on the wing because that was the only place where a, pl- a coach would trust them to do a job. Chase a kick, make a tackle, score a try if the opposition comes to you. But you don't see any guys playing halfback in the NRL from Fiji, do you? You don't see too many first five-eights and fullbacks of Pacifica um, extraction in New Zealand. You get the odd one, but they've been to schools like St Andrews or Kings or Wellington College where they've been schooled in the, uh, the Pākehā ways and taught how to play rugby, quote-unquote, properly. Um, we get this all the time. And so while we don't necessarily, the people aren't openly um, hostile towards players of Pacific background or um, derogatory towards them, we have these implicit sort of racist views in terms of what positions they're capable of playing, smart enough, reliable enough to play. You know, um, how we describe them, as I say, as a freak or a beast. And I just think that's, until we can treat people equally, and I don't think we're still doing that yet, um, I don't think we can be too proud of our record. Dana, what, is, what have your observations been working in the industry, and in particular as, as a woman? Obviously, you've seen women's sport has often been overlooked, or, or women's sport has often been put on, on the back burner to men. So you've seen that kind of discrimination in some form or another. What do you make of the racial bias in New Zealand commentary? 
Yeah, I'd be really intrigued to see um, a similar research done in New Zealand because I think definitely anecdotally you do see it. And um, just with, I guess, the spotlight that has been on diversity and um, media portrayal of people of colour just recently, it does really make you reflect on your own reporting. Um, I haven't done a lot of kind of live sport coverage for the last couple of years, but it does make me sort of go back and think with my own reporting, and this is more towards netball, did I kind of use different adjectives for for Māori and Pacific Island players that I did to to white players. And it kind of, yeah, it is really eye-opening to think that you do kind of tend to describe Māori Pacific players as, you know, by their physical attributes, as being powerful, um, whereas, you know, the, the, the white players may be more portrayed as clever, hard-working, those types of attributes. So, yeah, it does really make me now sit back and think about the adjectives I use in my own reporting. Segwaying. To Super Rugby, obviously a big match this weekend with the unbeaten Blues against the unbeaten Crusaders. The defending champions three times back to back, nine times overall, the kings of Super Rugby, so to speak, and the pretenders to Super Rugby Aotearoa throne this year seem to be the Blues. Could it be this year? Obviously they go down to Christchurch this weekend. The Blues haven't won down there since 2004. Hamish, we'll start with you. Can the Blues win in Christchurch this weekend? Um, I don't know, and I'll tell you why I don't know, because I haven't actually watched... um the games for the last couple of weeks. I haven't read about them either. Um, uh, I find these, I've written, these are exhibition games. They're on, they're a television product and I get why they're on and I get that they're valuable to a lot of people for being on. Um, but they have no um, context. They have no stature. They're just games for game's sake. Now, next year, potentially, when we have a better idea of what the post-COVID landscape looks like and we have a sort of a legitimate super competition, a legitimate franchise competition, whether it be domestic or multinational, then I might might be more enthused. But these games have been cobbled together as a TV product. And as a consequence, I don't think you can trust the performances because there's no no gravity. There's no consequence for losing. They're just games for game's sake. And uh, while it's good that, you know, it's on, I just, I can't take it seriously. I mean, people have been projecting so-and-so is an all-black in the making or such and such. Well, I don't reckon you can judge that. You know, go to Ellis Park in the final in front of 60,000 people and and, and play well. Then I'll I'll see if you're ready for test rugby. But if you're just playing these sort of Mickey Mouse games with nothing on them, really, anyone can shine in those circumstances. So um, I'm glad the games are on. I I probably won't watch again this week. But, um, yeah, that's about all I can say about it. Ken, the Blues Crusaders Canterbury Auckland rivalry seems to have resparked, or at least in the public's eye this week. Uh, a good thing for New Zealand rugby. You must be looking forward to the game. And, and do you think the, the game will live up to the hype, I guess, this week with regards to, to that provincial rivalry that's been around for so many years? Yeah, well, I'd expect it to be reasonably um, to be a reasonably tight contest um, early on. Um, just on the back of what Hamish has just said, obviously with the borders being closed um, and international um, travel and quarantine has made it impractical um, for the Super Rugby competition to um, uh, to continue in the format that it started. Uh, there was some conjecture, some felt that a, a, a ramped up might attend uh, cup competition with the All Blacks going back might have been a better feel. I said the might attend cup is going to start later in the year. Um, as well, but, but I do think that the story of 2020 is the Blues. At the end of the regular season last year, they were 13th, um, in my view. Um, had the competition have um, had continued, um, all five New Zealand franchise teams would have been in or around the top eight 
uh, given the quality of of the rugby. They are the best sides in the competition. Um, playing that's certainly been reflected in a lot of the close, a lot of the close score lines. Um, and for the Blues, the crowd they got, the work that they've done in the area to promote um, their home games um, has been tremendous. Their third year under um, under Leon McDonald, um, a Māori coach, uh, Tana Umanga, um, Samoan assistant um, coach, I think has been, um, is, you know, given the nature of our earlier debate, I think is relevant um, as well. And um, and I and I think you know I'm not smart enough to pick who's going to win. Um, the game, Joe, you quite rightly point out, phenomenal record from the Crusaders with their dynasty, uh, but the Blues certainly have momentum in 2020. Absolutely, and look, 2021 is scheduled to involve teams from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa and Argentina in what's looking like a more regular Super Rugby format. However, with COVID-19, that's still up in the air and there's speculation New Zealand and Australia could form their own competition either from next year or in the future when perhaps South Africa moved to look to uh, look to move to greener revenue pastures in the Northern Hemisphere. NZR boss Mark Robinson yesterday denied his board was split over a five New Zealand, five Australian franchise competition or an eight-team competition featuring just two Australian teams, five New Zealand teams and one from the Pacific Islands. Hamish, uh, what do you make of the suggestions of these two proposals? Do you think that's the likely future for Super Rugby in New Zealand and Australia without South Africa and Argentina? Yes, to your last one, I think that is probably the, the most likely eventuality. But I'm sort of oh, far out. I'm not a great speculator. I tend to sort of work along the lines of wake me up when something happens and then I'll talk about it or assess it. Or I definitely hear like, you on this I'd, one. I'd like some Pacific involvement, absolutely. Um, the Australian teams, I get that we need to involve multiple markets and, and, and um, get teams involved from there, but my oath, their, their rugby's pretty poor at the moment and I don't know how much their super teams would add to, to our competition. I, as Ken mentioned before, I, I'd far rather have seen New Zealand's players playing in a mitre 10 at the moment. I think that's a competition with context and history and I think winning that would mean something. You know, We've still got some great rugby to look forward to. I'm absolutely ecstatic that club rugby's on. The Farah Palmer Cup this year with sevens in the shape that it's in is going to be the best it's ever been. It's going to be a real showcase for female rugby and I can't wait to watch that. I just find franchise rugby with teams who are built for multinational competition playing domestically, I just I find that a bit flat, that's all. Dana, as someone who doesn't exclusively cover rugby and has their hands in, in, in many different sports, what do you make of the future of Super Rugby? Is it a competition that has had your interest for the past few years? Do you think it needs a revamp? And do you like the sounds of a New Zealand-Australia-only competition? Do you have any opinions, I guess, around the future of the competition? Yeah, like I, I agree that the format definitely needed revisiting and, and perhaps COVID kind of escalated some of those conversations or accelerated some of those conversations. Um, it sounds like NZ Rugby are favouring that eight-team format for a new Super Rugby competition, um, but whether they can get Australia on board with that, that will be another story. Having kind of seen it from the other side, we saw Netball go through that Trans-Tasman League split where um, they tried to up the representation of Australian franchises versus New Zealand franchises, and, and clearly um, that, that didn't work, and uh, both countries sort of walked away. Um, so it's, it's you can kind of see it from Australia's point of view, having sat in that seat from, from Netball, is that you know their high-performance pathways are really going to suffer if they've only got two or three um, 
super rugby franchises. So um, I think that's going to be the real hurdle for NZ Rugby is getting Australia on board. I would love to see some Pacific involvement as well. I'm, I'm like Hamish. Um, I think, you know, obviously there's been a huge amount of exploitation out of the islands um, for so long now that we actually need to support them and um, give them a presence in, in, in this on the stage. Ken, I'd assume you'd support the inclusion of a, of a Pacific team. Do you think this could be the future for Super Rugby, just Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands? Yeah, just defining what that involvement would look like. Um, yes. I think, um, you know, Tana's opinion is, is reflective of what um, of what everybody thinks needs to happen with regard to increasing the Pacific um, involvement. Just a couple of observations. It's interesting that uh, when the New Zealand netball split from... Um, uh, the Trans-Tasman Championship. It didn't in any way hinder their ability um, to become world champions. Um, and I wondered if um, if New Zealand had a Mitre 10 competition as its elite competition, whether the All Blacks um, would still be capable of winning the World Cup, not playing anybody else other than ourselves. Um, whether what happened at Nepal could happen um, in rugby. But if they're going to expand, and by all accounts it looks like, uh, I've probably been to Japan 15 or 16 times in the last five years on various commentary um, duties. When uh, Waseda, it's a powerful university in Tokyo, played um, Meiji in the final um, this year, there were 54,000 fans. Um, when Panasonic, which is coached by Robbie Deans um, and a real multinational side, um, played Toyota, where the head coach was Sir Steve uh, Hanson, 37,000 people. Um, at that game, and the elite teams in um, in Japan are quasi-international franchise teams themselves. And um, if they were to be part of a revamped super competition going ahead, the biggest crowds would be in Japan. Um, so I, you know, I can understand South Africa and Argentina joining Northern Hemisphere uh, competitions, but I feel the size of the economy um, in Japan, the population. Um, the support for um, for the teams, particularly if those high-profile global companies would get behind in the league competition, I think the um, the potential is limited by your imagination. The ongoing uncertainty created by COVID-19 means it's still not known when exactly international rugby will return. When it eventually does, though, the retirement of former captain Karen Reid after last year's World Cup means the All Blacks' number eight berth will be up for grabs. One of the players thrusting his hand up to claim that jersey is breakout young blues star Hoskins Sotutu. The 21-year-old has been one of the stars of the Super Rugby season so far. Sotutu is not only eligible for the All Blacks, but also Fiji through his dad, former blues and Auckland utility Wasake, and England through his mother. This week, though, it was confirmed he would be staying in New Zealand until at least the end of the 2022 Super Rugby season, signing a two-year contract extension with the Blues. Sotutu told Clay Wilson re-signing to remain on Kiwi soil was a relatively straightforward decision. Uh, it feels good. I, I wanted to play for Blues and I think I'm playing well because I love the team and you know I want the team to succeed so I feel like that's a big factor to how I'm playing at the moment. Leon said that you've taken a lot of strides off the field. Do you feel that and if so, how have you gone about doing that? I sort of just put myself more out there. I'd like have more conversations with the coaches and sort of senior players about know, about games and uh, uh, yeah, just like review and stuff like that. So I guess that's how I'm going off the field. And because last year I was quite quiet and you know sort of kept to myself. You know, first year sort of I know jitters sort of thing, but yeah, I just decided to change things up this year. I guess. In terms of your international future, you're obviously 
eligible as well as New Zealand for Fiji and England. What for you does this deal mean for your international futures? Um, well, I haven't really been talked to too much about any international stuff, but just want to focus on playing well for the Blues and get them back on top. Did you think about that at all in terms of, because obviously you're going to stay in New Zealand for the next two and a half years, did you think about what it might mean for your international career potentially? No, not really. I just sort of think that um, New Zealand at the moment is like the best sort of an environment for me to grow as a player. Like I'm still uh, young and um, still learning a lot. So, um, yeah, I feel like New Zealand is the best place right now to learn a bit more. I guess you've grown up as a Kiwi kid, yeah, right? Yeah. Like seeing the All Black jersey yeah. and you knowing about the All Blacks and what, what it means to this country. Yeah, New Zealand's home and, again, just like the Blues, it's like playing for a team uh, that you care about. So, yeah. yeah. A lot of people talking about you potentially being in the mix for that. How do you feel when you hear those sort of things? Um, like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty shocked, to be honest. Like... My first year in the oh, in the mix, like getting my first sort of minutes and like you know getting a lot of game time and getting those comments is quite like uh, oh surreal, I guess. But yeah, I'm just trying to play well for the Blues and like as long as I keep playing well for the Blues, and I guess other things will come. That's the Blues number eight, Hoskins Satutu there speaking to Clay Wilson. And that's extra time for this week. Thank you to Stuff Sports journalist Dana Johansson. Thank you to Hamish Bidwell, RNZ Sports columnist. And thank you very much to Sky Sports commentator Ken Laban for joining us on the show this week. We'll be back next week with another podcast. Until then, bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.